Have you noticed, have you noticed how language changes? Language evolves. Spam. Spam used to mean processed meat in a tin. It is now unsolicited emails and online junk. The stream. A stream used to be a little river in which you would paddle in. It is now a transport of unedited data in real time. A friend. A friend used to be a close ally, a confidant. Now it's one of a thousand unknown persons added to a social media account to make you feel special and loved. Language evolves sometimes in order to bring about social change. We saw that in the whole discussion about abortion termination that was started in the language of compassion, that then moved to the language of rights and women's rights. It then has changed more recently to the language of social responsibility. How can you be bringing that child into the world? Euthanasia, assisted killing, assisted suicide, assisted dying, easeful death, accessing death with dignity. Who doesn't want to access death with dignity? Uh, last week, Geoffrey Spector, a few days ago, family man, businessman from Lancashire, traveled to Switzerland. He was feeling fit, fulfilled, and happy, prouder than ever of that. He went and he took his life at Dignitas. The doctors told him he had an inoperable tumor in his spine, which would possibly cause paralysis. He didn't want to have to face that. And so he took the decision to end his life. His wife said this, whilst we're now in the state of all-consuming grief, and miss Jeffrey very much, we also recognize that he's now at peace and away from fear which surrounded him in the last weeks of his life. Jeffrey ended his life with dignity and control, which was his overwhelming desire. The lead in the story, in the, the the, the comment person in the Daily Mirror said this, choice is at the very heart of life. So by taking the choice to die when he did, while still feeling fit, fulfilled and happy, Jeffrey Spector showed the power of living at its greatest. Choice is at the very heart of life. Language changes to bring about social change. Now, we must approach this with care and compassion. But was Jeffrey right to do what he did? To himself, to his family? Was it his choice to make? Is choice at the heart of life? And did he show the power of living or did he show the power of fear at its greatest? The majority of people in the UK, 82%, would say that it was his choice. Many doctors, 54%, also agree. See, the issue that we all face is that no one evades death. It's part of life's journey. So it's not a theoretical, abstract thing. What will happen to you? Who will you be with? Where will you be? It's not something that we 
often enough talk about. It's not something in your life groups as you meet this week, next week. It's not an icebreaker to say of how would you like to die, 10 best ways to die. It should break the ice in your small group. But what is driving the agenda? What is at the heart of legalizing at the moment assisted dying? Daniel Jones, 23-year-old, in 2008 traveled to Switzerland. Daniel had been involved in a tragic rugby accident. The scrum went down, crushed his spine, and as a result, he was paralyzed from the chest down. His mum said this, Dan found his life unbearable. He could not walk. He had no hand function, was incontinent, and relied upon 24-hour care for every basic need. In answering criticisms of his son's reaction, she said this, Our son could not have been more loved, and had he felt he could live his life this way, he would have been loved just the same. But it was his right as a human being. Nobody but nobody should judge him or anyone else. How would I respond? How would we respond? Would we do anything any differently? You see, Daniel, he wasn't going through terminal illness. He was not in severe pain. The assisted dying bill that was recently introduced to Parliament said you, know, you have to have less than six months to live. You, you've got to be going through intolerable suffering. You've got to have at least, you've got to have a sound mind that has been verified by, by two doctors. For Daniel, that would not have applied to him. He was not in severe pain. He was not going through a terminal illness. He simply didn't want to live as he was because life was not worth living. Should a person have the right to die? A merciful death. Release from suffering. A good death. Should we have a good death? Euthanasia literally means that. A good death. But we know that euthanasia has kind of taken on this uh, intentional killing of a person by act or emission of whose life is thought not to be worth living. It's intentional and pre-planned. Putting the individual to one side, some argue some clear social benefits for legalizing euthanasia. With the breakdown of traditional family structures plus increasing life expectancy, wouldn't euthanasia solve this horror? Some social commentators would say that increasingly elderly population who are isolated from family and relatives, being kept alive for longer in order to live increasingly isolated lives, more people are dying lonely, euthanasia solves it. Another social benefit, people would say, with the increasing pressure on scarce health resources. With the spiraling health costs, the difficult decisions government and health authorities having to make in who can have and who doesn't have treatment. Every medical advance equals new and more expensive treatments. Euthanasia is remarkably cheap in comparison. Therefore, isn't it our social responsibility and our duty to do the decent thing? What, what with the rise of Alzheimer's? Current population, 0.7 million people. They reckon in the next 30 years that will increase to 1.7 million. A third of all people being born today will develop some form of dementia before they die. Some argue euthanasia provides a solution for those who know no different. 
And the fourth reason is the shortage of organs for transplants. With the rise of developments in health and safety, the downside of health and safety is that people are not dying from accidents. And therefore, fewer people are able to provide organs for transplant. And some commentators would say, think of the limitless, unlimited supply of valuable organs in order to preserve life. You look at it, it's cold, it's calculated. Is that at the real heart of the issue? You see, there's some counter-arguments to this, okay? What if there's a wrong diagnosis? What if the doctors are wrong? <laughs> Jeffrey Spector, what if the doctors got it wrong that they could not operate on him and they could not remove the tumor? What if there were some other developments in medical care that would allow him to be operated upon? So the counter-argument is that doctors get it wrong. Also, the doctors get the timing wrong. At best, it is just guesswork as to assess how long someone has to live. Another counter-argument is that it's going to place wrong pressure upon people. Now, imagine the situation that you are a relative or a carer of someone. The emotional burden of caring and the financial cost of care might put the pressure upon you to make a decision. If this was legalized, you're now facing a position where there's an option here that might put pressure upon you. Well, what about the pressure on the person themselves? One of the things I hear often is, I don't want to be a burden. People will have to start providing evidence why they should still be alive. And we shouldn't be putting that pressure on anyone. Another argument is the pressure upon the doctors and the carers themselves, who swore a Hippocratic oath always to care. When does duty of care include duty to kill? And there's an increased anxiety that will come into elderly and the vulnerable when being admitted into hospital, knowing that euthanasia is now legalized. Will I ever come out of this hospital or will it be like the cat being taken to the vet? So, wrong timing, wrong diagnosis, wrong pressure, wrong choice. For society, will legalizing the killing of people cheapen respect for human life in a society as a whole. In legalizing euthanasia, even with the safeguards in place, okay, 14 days cooling off period, like an insurance policy, with less than six months to live, this unbearable suffering, the sound mind, all these safeguards that people are saying these need to be put in place, which is a very interesting parallel to the safeguards that were put in place when the abortion bill was passed in the 1960s. Is it just a slippery slope? And the slippery slope argument is there to safeguard the vulnerable. Now, some of you were around. I have not, I clearly wasn't around. But have you ever wondered why in Nazi Germany it could end up like it did? Have you ever asked the question? How could they adopt a policy to exterminate so many people? Well, in 1920, uh, German law was introduced to allow the release and destruction of lives not worth living. It allowed the killing of the incurable sick. They then extended the principle. They said this, the right to live must be justified, not assumed. Those not capable, the empty human husks that fill psychiatric institutions have no sense of the value of life. Theirs is not a life worth living, and hence their destruction is not only tolerable, but it's downright humane. 
Then in 1933, there was a law that was passed for the prevention of hereditarily diseased offspring. People with congenital cognitive and physical disabilities like epilepsy, schizophrenia, manic depression, cerebral palsy, muscular dystrophy, the deaf, the blind, homosexual, the idle, the insane, and the weak, there was a massive sterilization program that went on, hundreds of thousands of people sterilized in order to try and to eradicate that out of society. In 1935, propaganda and posters started to appear depicting the cost on society for carrying disabled people. You are paying for them. In schools, the maths questions that were being asked to the pupils were asking the average cost to the state for providing care for epilepsy and for mentally ill patients. Then that program in 1939 was extended to the Jews. How could it happen? How could the acceptance of an idea, the socially unproductive, the ideologically unwanted, the racially despised, where did it start? With the incurable sick. It's a slippery slope. Legalizing euthanasia, many consider to be start of this slippery slope. The language that is being used is, is language of compassion. It's, it's language of rights. It's, it, it's, it, 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 it's the language that could so easily become a language of social responsibility, do the right thing. But the social economic benefits and the arguments for and against don't really start to tackle the real heart of the issue. What is at the real heart of the issue? It's tackling the issue of fear. Fear of pain. Fear of losing dignity. Fear of losing independence. Woody Allen said this, it's not that I'm afraid of death, it's just that I don't want to be there when it happens. See, it's not so much about death itself, it's more about the process of dying. The, the, the fear of physical pain, or the fear of pain, which is much broader, actually, than just physical pain. It's the impact of, the physical impact of the, the cancer on the body, and you know if you've observed this, it's heartbreaking to look on. It's the physical distress of knowing that this cancer is now spreading through the body. It's the psychological distress of wondering, what is my future going to hold? Will I be able to stay at home? Will I have to be put into a home? Will I be able to see my child's wedding? It's the relational distress of seeing the pain that your family are putting on a brave face. And then added into the mix is spiritual pain. The ultimate reality of death and then what? See, people assume that pain is useless. It has no benefit. It is futile. It is destructive. It is terrifying. Therefore, let's end pain now. Fear of pain, fear of losing dignity. With massive advances in medical care, most people, not all, are not in great physical pain when they die. I know we have people here who, who work at the hospice. They care and love, compassionately caring for people. But it's not just about the fear of pain. It, the big issue that many people, it's the, it's the dying with the catheter and the rubber sheet on the bed. It's the requiring to help needing help to shave or to brush your hair. It's the indignity. Life has lost its dignity at that point. Ludovic Kennedy, a strong supporter of assisted suicide, said this, for many people the fear of being snuffed out before our time has been superseded by a greater fear, that of suffering a long and painful and lingering death when all possibility of revival has gone, being kept alive but deteriorating all the time. It is not death that people feel the most, but undignified dying. And then finally, 
the most deep-rooted fear of all is the fear of becoming dependent on others and losing our freedom. Fear of losing independence. Friedrich Nietzsche, one of the strongest influences in philosophy and thought in the 20th century, said this, in a certain state, it's indecent to live longer, to go on vegetating in cowardly dependence on physicians and machinations after the meaning of life, the right to life has been lost. That ought to prompt a profound contempt in society. I want to die proudly when it is no longer possible to live proudly. I've lived my journey. I've written the story. I have lived my life by taking responsibility for my own own existence. I must be free to end my life in my way, in a way that fits actually in context of the rest of the story. It's my decision, my choice, my story, my ending, my way. And now the end is here. And so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it's clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And much, much more than this, I did it my way. Euthanasia seems to answer all of these deep fears. It ends pain, indignity, dependency. It's a strong argument, but is it right? We're looking at citizens. Just like we did with life last week. It's important for us to look to the Bible. It's our reference point. See, a secular individualistic society in which we're living says the Bible is irrelevant, but it's not to us. It's our guideline. It's the plumb line. It's the authority. See, the Bible is God's big story that starts with creation, that goes into how man, humanity fell. It talks about the recovery and the redemption of humanity and also then promises this fantastic future. See, the Bible is God's story that is fallen from something. We've been saved for something. Our journey actually goes right back to the very beginning, creation itself. In the first seven days of creation, according to the Bible, not Darwin, there's two peaks. Creation of humankind, humanity was the pinnacle of God's creation. And secondly, the introduction of the Sabbath. On the seventh day, God rested. Delight in recreation, delight in relationship with him, rest in him. There's a promise of a future to be restored. Then Genesis chapter 1 is this biblical narrative of the origins of the species, his work of creation. But then we read in Psalm 139, read it last week, For you formed my inner parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, I'm fearfully, I'm wonderfully made. But then the next uh, couple of verses on it says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance, like in the womb. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. So if we lose sight of the concept and the idea that we're designed by God, we're actually striking at the heart of a biblical understanding of what it is to be human. We're a part of his plan, part of his purpose, part of his design. We are in his story. It's not our story. It's his book, not our book. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Being made in God's image makes a huge amount of difference. Because we are in him. See, we're not individual, self-explanatory, independent, self-governing. We are a reflection of another. Made in the image of another. Just like the London underground map is a collection of color lines, but it's a map of a reality of, of another reality. The DNA that runs through our bodies, this human genome within us, is like a map that points to another reality, God. If that is true... Even though we have some sense of genuine choice and relative freedom, degree of independence, 
My life is not my life to do as I please. I am ultimately representing another. My ultimate meaning in life can only be found in relationship with God. See, the society in which we're living in, which is one of liberal individualization, says it's up to you. It's your choice. It's your right. Choice is at the very heart of life. But biblical citizenship says the exact opposite. You don't live for yourself. You don't have the ultimate choice. You are simply not the lead character in your own story, but you are part of the global human story written by God. Romans 14, for none of us lives to himself and none of us has died to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Now, the context of this is in sexual relationships, but this is a much bigger principle here. Okay, do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom, um, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So we're in him. Secondly, we are in community. Let us make man in our image. Bearing God's image is done in relationship with God and with one another. We're designed for community. My humanity, who I am, my personhood, doesn't come from my ability to think or my cognitive ability to think or to reason or my ability to physically move or to stand, but from the biblical fact that I am known and loved by God. See, the first point, if that is true, that we are written into God's story, God did not write into that story the idea of independence. Independence came at the fall of mankind. God said, do this. Did God really say, I'm going to do it my way? Independence is actually at the heart of the fall. It was never part of God's plan. We're not designed to be independent, but interdependent upon one another. Ultimately, that is seen, the biblical understanding of this thing called the Trinity, let us make God in our image. So as we are increasingly interdependent upon one another, we're actually painting a beautiful picture of the Trinity of God. We're no lesser person, judged by our ability. See, caring for someone then is not a burden. It's a privilege. It's an opportunity to love, to bless. We're in this together. We're in him. We're in community. We're in family. I carry the DNA of my parents. My children carry the DNA of me and Belinda. They get their beauty and their brains from Belinda and my ability to load the dishwasher from me. But rooted within the DNA is the image of God, the spiritual genome, the DNA. I pass that down. Every person biblically has something of the nature and the character of God within them. Every person. Some it's more difficult to see, but every person has it. But it also works the other way around. Not only do we carry something of God in us, if we trace back to the beginning of all time, that makes him our heavenly dad. Amazing to think that however many generations that from this day to present, not only God's image is found in us, but our identity goes all the way back to be found in him. Now through Jesus, we can come to know him as our heavenly father. And within that relationship dynamic, we have one who walks with us, who talks with us, who's with us in the pain, who's with us in the suffering. We are not alone. We are never alone. We're in family. 
and being in God's image, we're invaluable. If this is true, that each human life carries something of divine image, then it follows that each human life has incredible dignity, measurable value, not based on ability or function, but based on being born a child of God. Therefore, in that context, the man with Alzheimer's disease still has incredible value whether they have cognitive ability to think or to reason. And the lady with multiple sclerosis doesn't need to justify her existence. Why? Because she's not a burden, but a person valuable because of her creation status. Our dignity is based on what not we... Is our, basis, sorry, our dignity is not based on what we can do and how well we can function, but in who we are. We are carriers of his image. We're children of the Father. We're made in the image of God. Why is that important in the context of euthanasia debate? Because we're in him. God is writing the story. We weave into his plans. We're not the scriptwriter. God is. And just like Jesus said, not my will but yours, not my decision, whether I live or die, it's yours, God. We are saying, God, I'm going to trust you in this. Even through the pain. Later on, Paul says this, these present sufferings are preparing you for the weight of glory beyond all comparison. We're in him. But like Jesus, our story has an epic ending. We're in community, never designed to be independent, but in relationship. Being dependent upon one another paints a beautiful picture of how the Trinity works together. You say, I'm not wanting to be a burden. You are robbing me of the opportunity to bless you and to love you. To say that we're in family, we are children of God with a heavenly father who knows us, knows our pain, walks with us through the pain, never leaves us, comforts us, supports us, reassures us. We are invaluable. We never lose our dignity, even if we lose our ability. Why? Because our heavenly status remains the same. We are citizens of the king. If this is true then we shouldn't define personhood by the ability to function with cognitive reasoning and ability or with the ability to survive independently on our own, but should define personhood biblically by our status as children of God who bears his image, and we carry that status throughout life from the very beginning right to the very end, from the moment of conception to our final breath. That status is true for every person with Alzheimer's, every person with an aggressive cancer, every person who feels they're a burden on society, every person who feels they've got nothing worth living for. We're children of God from conception to final breath. Now you can breathe and hand over to Belinda. Oh, this isn't a light subject, is it? <laughs> um, I'm looking at, as last week, how do we respond? Some of these should seem quite familiar. How do we respond, first of all, in wonder? Last time, uh, last week, we looked at the incredible journey, didn't we, of um, the first 12 weeks in the womb. But that incredible journey runs throughout our life. Uh, and it's not just a physical journey either. All of our stories are remarkable. Our relationships, our connections with each other, our history, what we've all individually witnessed, participated in, how we've experienced life, expressed emotion, showed compassion, felt anger, injustice, faced fear, overcome tragedy, embraced opportunity, and lived our lives. Each of us here, it's not, we don't have to be uh, uh, the prime minister. We can do, it's ourselves, it's all of our lives, our history. We're unique and uh, we need to be in wonder of our lives, not just the physical, everything that our lives embrace. Secondly, respect. People carry the image of God, therefore treat others as God treats us. 
with compassion. The weak, the vulnerable, those with illnesses and disabilities are people. They're not non-persons. Whether their cortex functions or not, humans are made in God's image. So we need to respect everybody, whatever stage of life we're in, in the womb or whether we're in the later stages. Thirdly, um, in empathy, that's how we need to respond. We have the ability to see the world through someone else's eyes, to understand someone's pain, to acknowledge their fears, to feel their loss, sadness, anger, resentment, and to reassure people they're not a burden, to bring encouragement, reassurance, and hope. Fourthly, protection. Each human life is special, sacred, untouchable. Again, whether it be in the womb or whether it be at the end of life. People don't need to justify their existence. It's a human rights thing. Our humanity is defined by God, not defined by us. So there's four points. Wonder, respect, empathy, and protection. Why? Because each of us bear the image of God. And how do we respond then as a church? What's our biblical position? Graham's already looked at this. It's never our choice to end life, whether in the womb or assisting someone to die or ending our own life. It's not our choice. To end life is to destroy God's masterpiece, to rewrite the story that he has already written. He knows the beginning, the middle, and the end. We don't. So therefore, we need to be offering such an alternative that euthanasia or assisted suicide, or anyone considering taking their own life, it becomes unthinkable even if or when it becomes legal. That's what we need to do. It's a massive challenge to us as a church. I mean, how do we even do this? By, by having and developing a community of interdependent relationships that ensure dignity, promote respect, and build faith, and kind of eases people into death without fear. So it's helping people in the middle of suffering, bringing hope, relief, respect, dignity, and giving people a better way to die. We're all going to get there in the end. We're not talking about those out there. We're talking about all of us. Okay, Cicely Saunders, born in 1918, trained as a nurse, but later in her career, when nursing a Polish-Jewish refugee in his final stages of cancer, decided there must be a better way, a better way to care for the dying. She studied hard, she worked hard. 19 years later, in 1967, she opened the doors to St. Christopher's, the birthplace of the modern-day hospice movement, a holistic approach to helping people and supporting families. She brought about a quiet revolution in the care of the dying, a place where people could live before they died, with laughter, with hope, as well as tears and sadness. She often heard things being said like, well, nothing more can be done. And she'd say, actually, there's always something that can be done. And uh, what was her driving force? She became a Christian, and her faith was a fundamental factor in her desire to care for the dying, the conviction that there must be a better way. And we're in a community as well that can show that better way. For some, it might be volunteering or at uh, St. Wilfrid's, and it's great having Helen here today, um, who actually works at St. Wilfrid's. And I know there are many people um, in Eastbourne and maybe here who say, actually, that's an important thing for us to go in and volunteer, or visiting the care, residential homes, offering love and support um, and compassion, looking to combat loneliness, which is a massive thing with the elderly. 
It might be looking on in neighbours or hospital visiting or caring for relatives and family, people all around us, opening our eyes to where we can be involved. Be involved with term, um, people's lives who have terminal illness, listening in, caring, uh, taking them out, going to the pub, connecting with people, showing respect and honour and value, showing that dependence on others is actually a part of our human history. It seems countercultural, but actually, as Christians, we are completely dependent, aren't we? Completely dependent on God, and we're called to be interdependent with each other, a family we're described as being. So as a, as a church, it's quite a response and quite a challenge. But also as individuals, um, we're aware that there may well be people here who've been diagnosed with, with terminal illness, or in, in coming days or months, you might also be diagnosed. Um, you may be battling away, believing and praying, looking for God to break in. But at the same time, you need to make really tough decisions, uh, like what treatment should I have? Should I stop the treatment? What happens if the treatment's no longer uh, uh, beneficial? And we really encourage yourself and ourselves to, to remind ourselves, Graham has already said, we're part of an epic story, the big story of creation. We're part of that. The fall but then redemption through Jesus, and then a future which is eternal. And to somehow be able to remind ourselves of this is really critical. In 2 Corinthians it says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Sometimes we can read this and think, light and momentary, affliction, goodness, when we're in the middle of it, it doesn't seem light and momentary. Uh, we don't believe that, that Paul is minimizing um, suffering in any way. I mean, goodness, he, he, he actually experienced a great deal of suffering, almost to the point of death, not minimizing it. But what he was doing was using it as a comparison. However awful the situation feels, in comparison to the weight of eternal glory, it seems light and momentary. We're saved from something for something far better. And somehow connecting with that will enable us to have this hope and help others. Um, and so the next point really is to make the most of every, of every opportunity. You think, opportunity, really? This seems like an awful situation we're facing. But you're going to be sitting in, we're going to be sitting in hospital treatment rooms, sitting next to other people going through very similar things to you. The difference is, whilst they're full of fear and anxiety, they may not know or even believe in anything after death. Actually, we're not losing heart the fear and uncertainty of what happens next has already been answered. We're in a remarkable position to help others in this life and also to introduce them to God. Andy Carter, many of you probably still remember. Do you know Andy Carter? Yeah, absolutely. He used to come here. Um, he is a great guy. And I remember when he was um, uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer, he said, I'm not going to let this cancer go to waste. And if you remember him, he didn't. He took every opportunity to talk to his family, his friends, his roommates, his doctors, his nurses, ex-work colleagues. He took every opportunity to say, I'm not going to let this go to waste. And we're not saying not to pray. We're saying, please don't stop praying for the miracle. We believe in a God who can break in at any moment. Oh, I think Graham mentioned last, last week, maybe, of, of a guy back in Eastbourne who had, was literally given a minute to live. 
and uh, he stood up uh, a few months ago and said, this is my 20th birthday because God actually miraculously broke in and healed him. So we're saying, please keep praying for the miracle. But in your treatment, there may well come a day when people say, well, it's not looking for a cure, we're looking for palliative care. And it's tough. And we're saying, uh, we're also not saying, I'll slip this one in that we're saying that um, stop in stopping ineffective treatment is not deliberate deliberately ending your life. I say that again. A stopping ineffective treatment is not the same as, as deliberately ending your life. So if you think, if the doctor's saying this is no longer beneficial, we're not saying you, you, have, you, know, you mustn't stop. It's important for you to know that it's the best for your quality of life. Let me tell you a story. Stuart was a professional concert pianist. At the age of 39, he is diagnosed with a lymphoma, given every treatment available, including a trial drug. Doctors told him there was nothing else they could do. He moved from normal care into local palliative care, and they started to manage his pain. It's that conversation with the doctors that shifted something in Stuart's thinking. Rather than aiming at a cure, he started to prepare for the inevitable. He said, I want to tell people about my faith. I want to talk to the students, write letters to friends, family, co old contacts. I want to tell them what is happening to me and about my faith. He had a big list. At his memorial service, an, eye an eyewitness said there were many, many, many people attending who had received a special letter from Stuart, a letter in which he poured out his heart to them in an unusual and honest way. It had a profound effect on him. He said that Stuart showed me how to die well. In Ecclesiastes, it says there's a time to live and a time to die. It can be a time to grow. Our inner self is being renewed day by day, whatever's happening to our outer body. It's time to be restored. We can recover broken relationships. It's a time to let go of being in control. Actually, let's be a part. Let's accept the help from our, our, our community and our family. It's time to reorder our priorities, to look at actually what really does matter. Time to fulfill dreams, a gospel bucket list. What do we feel God wants us to achieve? Time for hope, because hope transcends the grave. Um, we're also very aware that there may be people here now, or people who have thought that actually life is nothing to live for. At this moment in time, you might even be questioning, what is the point to life? What's the purpose of existence? Is worth life living? And you might be even contemplating ending this life. But we really want to encourage you to remind yourself you are made in the image of God. With that comes extraordinary value as a child of God, even if you don't feel it at the moment. What comes with that is astonishing relationship with the Father, even if you at the moment feel as if you're not connecting. What comes in is an amazing community, the church that we're a part of. And with that comes a remarkable opportunity for his plans, plans that are good for you. Can you just tell you, there's a, um, I know I've whizzed through quite quickly, but there's um, someone I met uh, as I popped into Tesco's, as you do, just doing some shopping. I vaguely recognised uh, a neighbour. I hadn't seen for five years, and I went up to her, and she looked quite poorly. I said, how are you doing? And, and actually, it all came tumble out that she was, had been severely depressed. Her home life had been crumbling and uh, increased the pressure at work. She felt quite suicidal. And in fact, she was at that time in a psychiatric um, uh, ward. She'd been there for three weeks. And this day was her first day out. So what she was doing was coming in, getting some provisions for her family, taking them and, and cooking them a meal. 
And I just felt so challenged to tell her um, that I didn't believe it was an accident that we'd met in that shop. I hadn't seen her for five years, and I believed that it actually, that the Heavenly Father who loves her, she didn't know about this Heavenly Father, and yet he loves her and had a plan for her life. And we talked for a little bit in the shop. She then got her shopping and left. We then kept in contact, and I invited her along to church. She came along, and several months later, um, she responded and gave her life to the Lord, uh, which is an amazing time. And uh, I caught up with her. This is several years ago. I caught up with her a few weeks ago. I said, do you mind if I share this story? She said, no, of course I don't. She said, I remember that day really well, because I remember I had a plan. I was going to come out from the hospital. I was going to um, get some provisions, take them home, cook for my family, but I wasn't going to return back to the hospital. I had a plan to end my life. But actually, as I walked out of the shop, I heard a very faint whisper from God. It says, but I have other plans for you. It's amazing. That we, right at the very beginning, Jez said about, actually, we, you know, we're here, we're worshipping a heavenly father who loves us. This heavenly father knows everything about us, whatever we're thinking, whatever we're feeling, whatever we're going through. And he knew exactly how she felt. And she, he orchestrated that meeting and he spoke directly to her. That's how much he loved her. That's how much he loves us, whatever we're going through. And it's so important, I feel, for us to, to hold on to that and remember that. Um, I'm going to skip through to the very, very last thing. <laughs> You'll be pleased to know. 1 Corinthians 15, I think at this point, Ollie's going to um, stand up and uh, prepare to sing. <laughs> because I'm going to be from 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, but let me tell you something wonderful. A mystery I'll probably never fully understand. You hear a blast to end all blasts from a trumpet. And in the time that you look up and blink your eyes, it's over. On signal from that trumpet from heaven, the dead will be up and out of their graves, beyond the reach of death, never to die again. At that same moment, in the same way, we'll all be changed. In the resurrection scheme of things, this has to happen. Everything perishable taken off the shelves and replaced by the imperishable. This mortal replaced by the immortal. Then the saying will come true. Death swallowed up by triumphant life. Who got the last word, O oh death? O oh death, who's afraid of you now? I'm going to hand back over to Ollie. Or Graham. <laughs> A couple of minutes just to come into his song. As Blinda read through 1 Corinthians 15. The final enemy is death. The promise, death is not only defeated at the cross, but will be destroyed completely. Death was not a part of the paradise as God created in the beginning and will not be part of the new earth and the new heavens as God brings in the resurrection. Death will be no more. For now, death remains. But if you are in Christ, death has lost its sting. And with the first coming of Jesus, the penalty of sin was fully paid. And with the second coming, the effects of sin will be fully removed. Let's stand together.
That's the hope. That's the story. That's his story. Nailed in his story. Thank you, Lord. Even though we face difficulties and suffering and pain, help us to be people to say, not my will, but yours. Help me to somehow see that this is light and momentary in comparison to the weight of future glory. We don't minimize it. And yet we recognize that we come to a God who has given us an incredible future. Help us to stand strong. Help us to be tough. Help us to endure. Help us to understand our worth and our value. From first breath to final breath. To know that we're your children. And one day we'll stand with you face to face.